0: Hello and welcome to New Books in the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Hausman. Today, our guest is Gregory Crouch. Gregory is a critic and writer whose work has appeared in the Washington Post, in National Geographic, and on NPR, among many other outlets. He is previously the author of China's Wings and the mountaineering memoir Enduring Patagonia, as well as the book we'll be talking about today, The Bonanza King, John Mackey, and the Battle Over the Greatest Riches in the American West, which came out with Scribner earlier this year. Gregory, welcome back to the New Books Network. Thank you very much, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. Why don't we start by hearing a bit about you? Why don't you just tell us a bit about your background and how you became a writer and a writer of history specifically? Well, that story
1: essentially starts in childhood. I've always loved books and I've always loved history. Um, And, you know, I went to West Point uh, largely because there's no American university with a closer tie to American history than that. Uh, served my time as an Army officer, uh, but had fallen in love with climbing in that process. I, I was a, the cadet in charge of the Cadet Mountaineering Club back in the day, and I left the Army to become a climbing bum, uh, which... I'm probably the only West Pointer ever to do that, hmm. and thats uh, I was spectacularly successful as a climbing bum, having a stupendous amount of fun, and that started me off writing. I started writing for the climbing magazines, and often with a bent towards history. You know, I've always been fascinated by the past, and um, that grew quickly, uh, both writing about stories of my own and stories of other people, um, and I got totally fascinated with climbing in Patagonia in South America, and those I would go every year in the 90s, sometimes twice in a year climbing down there. And that grew into the book Enduring Patagonia. And after that, I th- that, that forced writing that book sat me down for about a year and forced me to think about my climbing career. And I thought that I really couldn't take it much further um, and so I started writing mostly about other people's experiences with the vision towards you know, becoming a general interest, narrative, nonfiction, historical writer. And that road led to China's wings. And then that was a great and entertaining project, um, loved it. Um, but the downside of that project was that every time I wanted to visit a location, it was on the other side of the Pacific. And I could only really afford to go once to look at the places on my research trip. And it would have been really nice to go several other times. So when that was finished and I was looking for a new story, I said to myself, there's got to be something closer to home that's pretty cool to write about. And so I live in the Bay Area and I started researching early San Francisco history in the hopes of um, finding a story to write about. I kept running across connections in the early history of the city to the Comstock Lode. I remember my mother taking me up there when I was a little boy on a, you know, a little trip. And that was a great memory. And that's such an interesting little Old West town living on the nostalgia of its boom times. And so the more I started looking into that story, the more I thought that there was an opportunity to add to what had been written about that. Uh, And and that led directly to the Bonanza King, to John Mackey. When I needed a character to carry the story, you know, he was the seminal figure in the history of the Comstock load. So that search leads straight to him.
0: And just as a quick aside, um, I'm curious, have you done any climbing in the Great Basin uh, region or in the region where the book takes place in particular around Virginia City and Lake Tahoe?
1: Oh, yes. I'm up there quite regularly, especially on the crags in the Tahoe region, where the two most important passes cross towards Virginia City, that's the one south of Lake Tahoe, then called Johnson's Pass, and now commonly called Echo Summit. And then at North Lake, uh, Donner Summit. There's really good climbing at both places. And I'm up there once a week. The way you, desc- on-
0: uh, the way you describe it in the book, it sounds like a beautiful and, and unforgiving place, really. Yeah, um, beautiful i mean in in neither of
1: those places is particularly hardcore as a climbing destination you know they're they're all really roadside and but super fun and the climbing's fabulous and the fact that when i'm climbing at lovers leap just above strawberry station the fact that the old pony express road literally goes right along the base of the crag is just fascinating to me yeah
0: that's great why don't we get into the book and get into John Mackey's story a bit? Can you tell us um, about his, his, I think it's fair to describe it as somewhat inauspicious early life and some of his beginnings? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to
1: imagine more humble 19th century beginnings than Mackey's. I mean, only people that were enslaved were further down the food chain than impoverished Irishmen in the middle of the 19th century. And, uh, you know, Mackey's Mother and father brought him to the United States in 1840 when he was nine from, you know, desperate rural poverty in Ireland, which was hardly a unique story. I mean, uh, they grew up. Maggie grew up in a one room cottage in Ireland with no windows uh, and, you know, a dirt floor sharing that floor with the family pig, who was almost certainly the family's most valuable possession. When they came to New York, they settled in the the Five Points neighborhood. That was very common. Most of the Irish that came to New York ended up in in the wards around the Five Points neighborhood in southern Manhattan. Uh, It was the most notorious slum in the world in the 1840s, Um, and Mackie you know, was doing well, must have the family must have been doing well, because Mackey went to school for two years, the first two years that he was in this country, and only about half of the school age Irish children in New York attended any school at all at that time. Um, Mackey, and uh, things fell apart After those two years when his father died, that forced Mackey to quit school and go to work selling newspapers on the streets of New York to support his mother and sister, you know, sweeping street crossings after he'd sold newspapers, carrying packages for tips, shining shoes, and then going back to selling newspapers again when the evening papers dropped. Uh, Super hard Scrabble existence, you know, those Irish kids hawking those newspapers, you had a if you had a good street corner, you could expect to have to defend it with your fists against interloping newsboys wanting to sell newspapers alongside you. Uh, you know, Mackie, when he was about 16, he kind of outgrew that job and took an apprenticeship in a shipyard, uh, learning carpentry skills, building wooden ships and and then gold was discovered, and he finished out his apprenticeship. He didn't actually come with the 49ers. He didn't come to California till his apprenticeship was over, probably in about the middle of 1851, and then he comes to California in the fall of 1851.
0: And what was the California of the early to mid-1850s like? Set the scene for us as to what Mackey encountered when he got off of the ship in, I believe, San Francisco um, in, in that year.
1: Yeah, that's correct, Stephen. Um, He arrived in San Francisco, uh, but he hadn't come west for city work, right? He'd already done that. He'd come west to mine gold. So he went to a camp called Downeyville, uh, which was a, you know, rough and dirty mining camp in the Sierras. It's currently, well, it was currently about an hour, hour and a half north of Sacramento on the North Fork of the Yuba River and went to work mining there. Um, you know, dirty, violent, uh, very little law in the early mining camps, um, uh, incredibly hard work. That kind of gold mining. Placer mining gold is essentially like digging an endless ditch. Uh, but Mackie liked it. You know, it's a lovely country up there. And you're working outside, maybe with some friends in partnership uh He always said that those were his happiest years when he was free from the responsibilities and burdens of later years. Um, The problem was is that those 1850s miners, the gold rushers, were pretty good at what they did. They got the gold out of the stream beds and the gulches very efficiently and returns declined. So as the years went by, they were finding less and less gold until by the late 1850s, they weren't. Rick, Mackey wasn't finding enough gold to make grub, as miners call it. That was finding enough gold to pay for your provisions that you needed to survive. And and that break point was about $3 a day.
0: Meanwhile, tell us about what's going on on the other side of the Sierra Nevadas, in the mining region near Lake Tahoe. Um, tell us about Henry Comstock and the, the strike that would eventually come to bear his name. What's the early history of the mines there?
1: Well, there is this... Canyon on the other side of the Sierras, uh, just east of Lake Tahoe in what is now Carson City. It's called Gold Canyon and it runs down to the Carson River Valley. And gold was discovered there early on in 1849 by the 49ers rushing across uh, the country to get to the California gold fields. Uh, But it's pretty barren country over there, very barren country over there. So very few people stayed early in the 1850s to work this one canyon that had profitable quantities of gold in it. They just rushed on to California and the the promise of greater wealth surely existing for them in California. However, um, they trickled back, some miners trickled back over the mountains in the coming years until through the middle 1850s, the Gold Canyon Placers, were worked consistently when there was water, right? It was intermittent water, and water is the one essential ingredient of placer mining. You have to separate the gold flakes out from the sediments with running water, with flowing water. So when there was water, you could mine Gold Canyon, and when there wasn't, you couldn't do it. So they worked there eight, nine months a year, um, and they don't know that... Lurking above them on the mountain above them is, you know, the greatest mineral load that would ever be discovered in the United States, The uh, what came to be called the Comstock load. And, and again, these miners working Gold Canyon are afflicted by the same declining returns problem in the late 1850s that the Placers just aren't, fi- they're not finding enough gold to make grub. So that forces them to search for new diggings. And they hit... Very modestly, barely profitable diggings much further up Gold Canyon uh, and then over the divide between Gold Canyon and what's called Six Mile Canyon. And at, in upper Six Mile Canyon, they found placers that paid m- bare wages. You know, paying a paying claim was one that made more than grub. So they're working up there in like 1857 and 1858. But even that isn't returning much gold. And so those diggings are dying. That whole region is dying in the spring of 1859 when miners make two strikes that seem separate at first. A fellow named um, James Fenimore, Old Virginia, Old Virginie, he led a group that hit profitable diggings atop a little mound in Upper Gold Canyon that they named Gold Hill, and then a few weeks or months later probably not more than eight weeks later these two irish guys um strike a very funny layer of black rock about four feet below the surface um in an upper six mile canyon and it's it's rock that you can cr- it's barely rock you can crumble it in your hands uh But they crush this rock to to dust with, you know, hammers and a pestle, run it through their gold rockers, the very simple device that'll separate uh, gold from the surrounding sediments. And they are astonished to see, you know, multiple ounces of gold behind the riffle bars of their um, rocker. And that's just an amazing strike. And Henry Comstock, Walked up on them that first day and kind of horned his way into the original partnership by claiming almost certainly spuriously that he had a 160 acre claim in the region for ranching purposes and that he owned the little spring that they were using to wash the gold. And that kind of forced the two Irishmen to admit him to their partnership, but it also meant that they could claim more ground. Um, so they did that. And then they're working that black, funky black rock, crushing it up and washing out huge quantities of gold, you know, $300 a day they were making early on. So this is a staggering amount of money for these guys. That touches off a local rush, right? When the word gets out, it's impossible to contain that kind of a success in in a mining region where everybody's got their eye on everybody else, right? And um, so... The other miners claim the surrounding ground, none of which is profitable originally because they don't have this black rock. Um, Somebody gets curious about this black rock, uh, wondering why it's so heavy, and takes it across the Sierras to Grass Valley and Nevada City where there are professional assayers, guys that um, examine rock and decide what's in it, right? and That assayer, the first one turns back, you know, $870 of gold per ton, which is, again, a staggering amount of just plain gold. The other assayer agrees yes, there is $876 per ton in this black rock. However, there is also $3,000 per ton in silver. Hmm. This black rock was um, a sulfide, a silver sulfide uh, ore that was incredibly valuable and that blew people's minds. Nobody had ever found a silver mine in California or in the Western United States, but everybody knew about the legendary silver mines of Potosi and Bolivia and you know um, the ones in Mexico around Tosco and Zacatecas and Guanajuato and stuff like that. Those were legendary mines that had been worked for centuries at profit. Um, so there's this huge boom and excitement over silver mining, over the potential of silver mining, and Maggie joins that rush, uh, that first rush in the in the spring, and it's it's actually quite a small rush in the spring of 1859. Um, and but Maggie abandons his claim in Downeyville, walks over the Sierras with his partner because the, you know they're too poor to afford a mule, and then arrived in this dirty, squalid, rudimentary mining camp um that had not yet become named virginia city and you know went to work for 4 dollars a day in the productive mine
0: Um, I had known a bit about the history of the uh, Comstock load prior to reading your book, but what I didn't know was the sort of uh, tragically ironic end of Henry Comstock himself. So without getting too far ahead of ourselves, can you talk a bit about what happens to the the man whose whose name would bear this famous strike?
1: Yeah, that, that fascinated me. And I was stunned to discover lots of newspaper articles, pertinent to Henry Comstock through the newspapers in the 1860s. um, You know, he... So you have this strike, you have, and it's on the surface, and you don't know what you have. Um, and he has been lambasted historically as like a fool for selling out and stuff like this. But you know, when you think about it, that I don't think that's the case. He and his other miners that were in the original company didn't know what they had. They had something very valuable at the surface, and and but it's different. It's an ore. It's not in native condition, and and getting silver out of silver ore is a non-trivial undertaking. And American miners did not know how to do that in 1859 profitably. Um, it's a huge process and it's very expensive and only really high grade ores are uh, in those days were profitable. So they are in a mine to sell out. They want to sell out to a capitalist investor willing to invest in this mine. And you know you don't know how much you have. It might pinch out 30 feet below the surface. It might pinch out 300 feet below the surface or 100 feet below the surface. You just don't know. Um, and, and it would prove to be very common in Western silver mines that there would be incredibly valuable ore at the surface and that it wouldn't Continue in depth. There's actually a physical process that makes that happen called super gene enrichment, which they knew nothing about at the time. So they're not acting in a foolish manner. And many Western histories paint these original locators as fools. And I just don't think that's the case. Anyway, they sell out to capitalists willing to take a large financial risk on these mines, and and Comstock walks with about $15,000 in 1859. That is a staggering amount of money. That's for sure 10 times more money in one pop than Comstock has had run through his fingers in his entire gold-rushing experience, you know. So he thinks he's wealthy, and he does what any good person that's made a raise on a mining strike does is he opens a store. He's gonna sell provisions to the miners and tools and stuff, but he's not a good businessman. He extends credit to many unworthies and he promptly goes broke. Um and that forces him to go back to to mining. So he leaves the Comstock load, which has become known for him because of his salesmanship, because he was such a good salesman in interesting these California capitalists in the mine. Uh, he did not, of course, know that it was the apex of the most valuable ore bodies that would end the most valuable load that would ever be found in the United States, and that this this deal would make a fool of him. Anyway, he drifts north to Oregon, and he goes back to working in river, you know, streambed placers, and he drifts over the course of the next decade. He drifts through Idaho and Montana and Wyoming. And you're able to track his progress through these little bit articles in the newspapers. Um, And man, he must have seen it in a thousand eyes all over the West, right, that he'd blown the biggest chance in the West Um, and his name was stuck to it. And after 10 years of this fruitless labor, always hoping to find something similar to what he'd found on the Comstock load and never doing it he gets despondent outside of Bozeman Montana in September of 1870 clenches a barrel of a pistol between his teeth and shoots the back of his head out commits suicide it's and a- by that time uh, well by that time John Mackey who had walked onto the Comstock load penniless when um, when Comstock had you know 15,000 dollars Mackey had had several successful mining ventures by that point, and he was a rich and successful mine owner. so it's there. He's like Comstock is like the foil to Mackey's rise. And I just thought it was a fascinating story. And he's buried outside in the Sunset Hill Cemetery outside of Bozeman, Montana, about 30 feet or 30 yards from Nelson's Story, who is the guy that led the first cattle drive to Montana, whose life from Texas and his life inspired Lonesome Dove. So you've got these two seminal figures in the history of the West, both within like 30 yards of each other in the Sunset Hills Cemetery in Bozeman, which is fascinating to me.
0: Right. And as you were saying, looking at Comstock's story next to that of Mackey's, it really it really goes to underscore the, the almost coin flip nature to a certain extent of mining in the mid-19th century in the Western United States.
1: Yes. Every miner knew that, that, that mining was like God's lottery scheme, hmm, right? And, yeah. That was both the upside and the downside. You know, you could work a claim an entire season, wash and dig thousands, hundreds, thousands of buckets of dirt and finish poorer than when you started because you weren't finding enough gold to make grub. And the guy in the adjacent claim could work for a couple hours, hack into a glory hole and carry off more gold in a morning than you could make in a lifetime of toil in the eastern states. And that, that story was common in the Mining West.
0: So this book is about John Mackey, but it's also about a particular place in a particular historical context. And the book does a really fantastic job of painting a picture of what Virginia City and the surrounding towns and mining camps were like, and how they changed over the course of the 1860s. Can you paint that picture for us a bit? Tell us what the town was like over the course of 1860
1: to 1865, 66? Yeah, sure. Um, Again that is something that completely fascinated me Virginia City is this barren mountain slope in you know the Nevada desert on the edge of the great basin and uh it went from you know boulders and sagebrush and brutal winds uh, in 1859 to by 1862, 1863 being the second largest city on the Pacific coast, right? Trailing only San Francisco. And it was the, you know, it's, it's deep hard rock mining, which is very different than placer mining. So you need huge industrial machinery to, you know, huge steam engines and hoists, uh, to run the mines, you know, to to lift the ore out of the mines and lower the miners into the galleries down the shafts, Uh, and you need big, powerful mills to reduce the ore and get the, get the valuable metals out of it. So it's this industrial metropolis. It was the only industrial city between San Francisco and St. Louis. And it would, it would hold that dominant position for 20 years. Um, you know, every, Everything you read about Virginia City from that time is you know the second city of the Pacific coast. Uh, uh, it, it's just amazing. and there's you know in the boom times, maybe twenty thousand people living there, and in the last census, there were eight hundred and fifty two
0: so it really is a boom and bust story then for for, for Virginia City.
1: Yeah, you know, it it was a single commodity economy, right? Or a mining dependent economy. And when the mines played out, the town played out too. And what is there today, you know, lives off of this Old West nostalgia, which is a totally cool place. It's really got a great vibe. I, I thoroughly encourage everybody to visit Virginia City because um, the ghosts of the past are very apparent there.
0: As they are in a lot of, of, of mining towns like that across the West.
1: Yeah, I agree, Stephen. I, I really enjoy exploring that.
0: So how did Mackey adjust to life in Virginia City, and how did he slowly begin to make a name for himself in the mines of the Comstock Lode? Well, you know, he was not
1: a get-rich-quick schemer, unlike almost every other miner, although for sure he would have taken a get-rich-quick scheme if nature had dropped one in his lap, right? But he he had a legendary capacity for hard work, and when he went to work in those mines for $4 a day, he, he started working his way up by doing what anybody would consider two shifts of hard physical labor per day, the first in exchange for... Um, Four dollars a day, the prevailing local wage, which was what he needed to survive, and the other in exchange for feet. Now, feet was how the mines were owned. Um, load mine, a load is a is a long line at the surface, and it's a it's a quartz vein that's filled a crack in the earth's crust, the fault zone, right? So it doesn't make sense to claim these square or rectangular slices or rectangular claims like placer gold mining. When you're quartz mining, you want to divide up the load into distinct slices. And you have, as a miner who has a, owns a claim, you have the right to follow that load wherever it goes underground as long as you stay within the, the two end lines of your claim. Now, um, that... Let's say you owned a four hundred foot slice of the Comstock load, that would be divided up into four hundred feet, and each foot would be a, a a share. Originally it pertained to a specific geographical foot, but that was just a recipe for endless lawsuits. <laughs> so it became it became, you know, a share in the mine in the same way that you own a share in a modern company. And you could buy and sell feet. Um, with speculative intent, you know, based on what you perceived the future value of the mine. So if you think that the ore in the mine is improving, it's probably underpriced. And if you think the ore in the mine is playing out, it's probably overpriced and you can, you can, you know, make speculative maneuvers, buying and selling feet based on that. And by the way, um, the rich people in the on the coast owned thousands of feet, right? no, no, uh, attractive young woman would allow herself to walk into the affections of a footless bow is how I think I saw it uh, said out here. And, you know, a young lady was interested in dating a centipede or hopefully a millipede. Um, and so feet becomes the measure of ownership. And Mackie does this second shift, like building a tunnel, or what would be called an add it, so a horizontal tunnel to access the load in depth for another mine in exchange for feet, in exchange for a share of its ownership, earning some sweat equity. And when he has earned it, he can buy and sell those feet. Or if the ore body that they strike is rich, then that mine will pay dividends on the feet. So that was how you made money or he became wealthy in mining ground was intelligently speculating in mines. And since Mackey spent his whole life underground, he generally had an advantage on mine speculators who weren't miners themselves. And he did, he speculated pretty intelligently in the first Comstock boom in the early 1860s. And by the end of the Civil War in 1865, he had accumulated um, enough ground or enough feet that he 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 consolidated them all his ownership into a a mine called the Kentuck, a, a tiny little slice of the Comstock load. It was only 94 feet wide, but it had ore in it from stake to stake, right? And then Maggie and his partner pulled. million worth of gold out of this tiny slice of the Comstock load in 1866 and 1867 and their share of the profits ran to $600,000 each.
0: Another strength of this book is how well you show that the Comstock mines and Virginia City, how they were linked to a regional and a national economy, that Virginia City was never anything like an isolated island within the mountains. Could you describe a bit, in particular, the banking as well as the other connections that Virginia City mines had with places like San Francisco and how they affected the fortunes of the diggings?
1: Yes. Um, And Stephen, I got to admit that one of the big surprises of this book to me as I was researching it was how interconnected the United States was in the middle of the 19th century. You know, I expected that a gold rushers trip to California was a one way trip and that you never went back east. Right. That you were literally abandoning home when you went to California. That is not the case at all. Those nineteenth-century people got around like you can't believe, um, and the whole economy of the West was interconnected, and the whole economy of California was connected with the eastern nation as well. And that came as a big surprise to me. I did not appreciate that. Now, um, in, in the late eighteen in eighteen fifty-nine, when the Comstock load is discovered. And in the, the next year or two, as it becomes clear that that is gonna become a very important mining region, California is thrilled. That's gonna be a whole town of 20,000 people just over the Sierras in Nevada, and it's gonna be completely defend, dependent on California for everything, right? All of its food, um, all of its everything that's gonna support that town has gotta to come from California. So, yes, it creates this huge ancillary boom. In the uh, California economy, and uh, not to mention, you know, pouring gold and silver into the local economy, and you know they're digging up cash. Those were monetized. You'd send it to the mint. The mint would whack that stuff out into coin and give it back to the mines. You know, they were literally digging up cash. <laughs> and and so and so the banking, you know, the finances, the banking. These are huge capital. The mines disgorged huge amounts of capital that expands the money supply on the coast, which makes possible, you know, industrial expansion. It encourages the creation of industrial economies, forging, uh, you know, foundries, making the machinery to operate the mines, spring up in San Francisco, smelters do all kinds of other economic activity is created because of the Comstock mines. Um, And, you know, California thrived because of it.
0: And so into this story steps William Sharon. Who was he and what was the so-called bank ring? And why are they so important to John Mackey's story?
1: Yeah, well, Sharon, they're like the bad guys of the story. They're the heavies. Um, uh, This is an age largely devoid of corporate governance regulation. So the opportunities to make money private for your private pockets uh, based on exploiting publicly owned mines are legion. And Sharon early on recognized the key to that or a key to unlocking that. So uh, the Comstock mines actually went into depression in 1864 as the surface ore bodies played out. There were, were quite a number of mines that had really good ore close to the surface, but below about 300 feet, 400 feet, 500 feet, those deposits played out, so the mines go into depression, you know, no ore, no... No money, no economy, nothing. So it looks bad for the Comstock load when the Bank of California is created in San Francisco. And the tri- the two guys that are most important in that are William Ralston and Darius Ogden Mills. And Ralston and Mills send Sharon out to the Comstock load to uh, originally to recover collateral property th- from a defaulted loan, right? And Sharon goes out there and he sniffs around the Comstock load and he thinks that there's a much larger opportunity. He sort of suspects that the mines are not played out, that they're just at a temporary depression and that there more ore will be found in greater depth. And if that's the case, then all these mines are badly undervalued. Uh, So there's an opportunity to take them over and make money out of it. But how do they do that? Um. The Bank of California, with Sharon as its representative in Virginia City, starts loaning money. And they would loan money on mining property collateral, even mine stock collateral, which made miners really happy. Lots of banks wouldn't do that. So every time Sharon loaned money and took mining stock as collateral, he insisted on receiving the proxy vote for that share of stock. And since a lot of people were addicted to mining stock speculation, they were borrowing money on one share of mine stock to buy more mine stock. And Sharon insisted on receiving all the products, all the associated proxy votes. So he quickly assu- uh, accumulated um, management power, voting power, without actually owning any shares. And as soon as that tipped over 50% in a mine, that meant that he could install the management of that mine. And that opened up a whole ton of opportunity for the person that controlled mine management. And the bank ring, which became the guys and the, the main guys in it were uh, Ralston Mills and Sharon. They Founded or formed a private company with themselves that milled the ore. So they owned the mills that reduced the ore. Um, and that you, are, mills earn money based on per ton of ore reduced, whereas mines make money based on the amount of precious metal in the ore, which varies widely. So Sharon installed superintendents and foremans and managers that did his bidding, and they would send all of the ore to the private mills that the bank ring owned, um, and they would make money based on volume of ore reduced. Now, Sharon was not that was great. That was good business. Sharon was not above improving it by having his his um, by having his managers mix waste rock with profitable ore. Now, that meant that, let's say you had ore that had $90 worth of gold and silver in it per ton. That would have been very valuable ore. If you owned a mine that had a lot of that ore, you would expect to get very, very rich. If you had a lot of shares in a mine with that quality of ore, you would expect it to soon be paying large dividends and getting you rich. However, if you're owning shares in a mine that is being managed by William Sharon's regime – His managers are not going to be above mixing that $90 ore uh, with two tons of waste. Now, in a square transaction, that $90 worth of ore would reduce about $60 worth of gold and silver. You'd lose about 30% in the tailings and in the milling process. So from that $60, $20 is going to pay the one-ton reduction charge to the mill, and $40 is going to go back to the mine. Great transaction. However, if you mix $2 or two tons worth of $10 rock with that one ton of $90 ore, now you reduce about $70 from that uh, three tons of rock, $60 goes to the mill and only $10 goes back to the mine. And uh, that makes the mill owners very rich and the stockholders get nothing. And that's kind of how the bank ring racket worked. And Sharon Mills and Ralston made themselves into the three richest men on the Pacific coast, milking that scheme to the hilt.
0: And along the way, they come into conflict with Mackey and some of his associates. How do the two sides end up butting heads in this story?
1: Right. The vulnerability in the bank rings scheme is that they don't actually own the shares they'll they're vulnerable to a hostile takeover of the of the of the mine right so maggie formed a secret partnership with another miner named james fair and two san francisco saloon keepers turned stockbrokers james flood and william o'brien Flood and O'Brien operated a saloon, the auction lunch saloon, on the site of what is now the Transamerica Pyramid, which is right around the corner from the main nexus of stock trading on Montgomery Street in San Francisco. They started hearing good stock tips over their bar and speculated wisely and had built themselves up a small nut of money. Mackie contributed most of the money to the partnership, um, indeed loaning money to some of his partners for their shares. So he always had the lion's share of the partnership. Uh, but in, in secret, Flood and O'Brien in this in 1869, 1868, 1869, started buying and selling a lot of shares of a mine called the Hale and Norcross that uh, the bank ring controlled. Now, uh, nobody really noticed them buying a lot more than they sold. And when the next election came around, they owned more than 50 percent of the stock. So they deposed Sharon's management and installed themselves because Mackey and Fair had decided that the mine was being improperly managed, that it could be made much more profitable than it was and and so they took it over and indeed did make it much more profitable to the benefit of the stockholders, right? Because they're now stockholders. That's where their money is, and um, and so that was the first chink in the armor of the bank ring in the late
0: 1860s. And that event becomes known as the Irish Coup, correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, you know, and there's a fair amount of anti-Irish prejudice in the United States at this time. Uh, and and so, you know, Mackey Flood, Farron, O'Brien, the firm, as they were originally called, and after they made their huge strike six years later, they were the Bonanza Firm. Uh, are kind of heroes of the undertrodden on the coast.
0: So soon after this success for Mackey comes what you describe as the Comstock Load's worst day. What happened on April 7th, 1869?
1: Yeah, well, um, when I started researching this story, in my head... The thing that you would be most afraid of as a miner was like being in a cave in. I guess that's how we would refer to it. I never saw that phrase used in the nineteenth century. They always talked about being in a cave, a collapse, right? But it turns out that the more I looked into it, that isn't that that isn't what scares miners. Usually ground gives notice that it's about to collapse before it happens. Uh, and so miners can leave the threatened part of the mine. But even if you are caught in a cave, you know, it only kills the people that are directly under it. Um, There are all kinds of things in a mine that are more dangerous than that. Falls being one of the things, falling down a mine shaft or falling through these huge galleries killed lots of guys, but the thing that terrified miners more than anything else was fire. And the reason was that underground fire um, sucks the oxygen out of the entire mine and kills everybody underground, even if they're hundreds or thousands of feet from the fire. So fire is the thing that truly frightened a 19th century miner and i indeed i think it still is considered the greatest hazard in mining even today mine fires are awful disasters well one starts on the 800 foot level of the yellow jacket the kentuck and the crown point mine which were three adjoining mines on the comstock and they just turned into this epic disaster where 37 guys are killed uh you know in in minutes right they're all dead within probably 10 minutes of the fire starting
0: And this is really the beginning of a bit of a nadir for the Comstock stock load for for Virginia City, since in the early 1870s, some people are predicting that the diggings in the area are played out. So what happens (coughs) next, and how did Mackey and other mine operators prove these naysayers wrong? Yeah, um...
1: Well, the, now we're at about a 1,000—or let's say that we're at about the the 800 to 900-foot level, and miners had high expectations for when they opened the 1,000-foot levels of these mines in late 1869, and they there wasn't anything there. The, the ore bodies had kind of played out or had played out, so the Comstock sank into a big depression. About the only profitable mine at that time was Mackie's Hale and Norcross, so they're doing well. But it wasn't a it, it was a it was a rich strike. Nobody would have turned their nose up at it, but it wasn't a world changing strike by any means. And then um, an ore body gets struck in a different part of the Crown Point mine on the eleven hundred foot level, and that spreads into the mine to the south of it called the Belcher, and that's a huge ore body. And it that the Uh, That catapults um, the bank ring back up on top. Uh, William Sharon owned the Belcher almost entirely, and he'd lost—there'd been a crack in the bank ring, and two minor players in it had actually taken over the crown point, uh, John Percival Jones and Alvinza Hayward— That's the guy that Hayward in the Bay Area is named for, and John Percival Jones became a famous Nevada senator, and he's also the founder of Santa Monica, California.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, Anyway, that catapults those guys into a stratosphere of wealth far beyond Mackey and his three Irish partners. So if they're going to compete, they need a new strike of their own. And since mining ventures of this scale are almost all double or nothing ventures, Mackey and his partners dump everything that they've raised from the Hale and Norcross into a neglected stretch of the Comstock load right through the heart of Virginia City. Two adjoining mines, one called the Consolidated Virginia Mine and the one just north of it called the California Mine. And, and you know, they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars developing Prospecting this mine below a thousand feet. Uh, They got to sink the shaft another 600 feet and then prospect out from there. And lo and behold, they clipped, they just clipped the top of barely profitable ore in late 1872, early 1873, a thousand feet down. They don't really know what they have. It seems optimistic. The, The indications, miners were always talking about the indications. The indications were good. And they spent the next year and a half to 2 years kind of developing this strike and taking it down another level via winses which are mine workings going down inside of a mine so going down via winses and drifts and cup crosscuts and prospecting this strike which grows bigger and bigger And when they open the 1,500-foot level in late 1874, it becomes apparent that they've got something of a completely different magnitude, a staggering magnitude. And that's what becomes known as the Big Bonanza. And it made Mackey one of the richest men in the world. It's the greatest mining strike that's ever been made in the United States. Um, It was this ore body started at about 1,200 feet or 1,167 feet where they made this strike and went down to about 1,800 feet feet, so it's about 600 feet deep, 1,000 feet long, and up to 350 feet wide, and it was just incredibly valuable ore, worth about $100 to the ton, and Mackie, in aggregate, there were shoots of it that were way more value than that, Um, Mackie and his partners pulled $110 million of gold and silver out of that mine in the next five years. So... as, a slice, as, a, as an equal slice, 42% of the coinage of the United States came out of that one stretch of Nevada between 1875 and 1880. Think about that. The United States mint 42% of the money that they made came from that one little piece of Nevada. Um, and uh, as a slice of the total economy, like the you know money is has an emotional impact. Sums of money have an emotional impact, and we might not be overly impressed with 110 million dollars today. But as a slice, as an equal slice of total, of the total national economy in 1880 110 million dollars is equal to 204 billion modern dollars right so it's like having the market cap of apple buried in the nevada desert in cash you know just staggering amount of wealth
0: when we started the story you know john mackey was um the uh, a, a rather poor irish immigrant he was working on the streets of new york city and he in the the course of the story, he's come quite a long way. What is his life like in the mid 1870s at the height of his wealth and power? What's his family life like? What is, what is the story like at this point? Well, what happens again, this
1: totally fascinated me. His wife fascinated me every bit as much as he did. She's got equally humble roots, right? She was, had been brought to a, a, you know, also to Downeyville. There's no evidence that her and Mackey knew each other in the middle 1850s as a young girl um so she's from poverty uh she married a guy a promising doctor who got a, a few days after her 16th birthday the doctor squandered all their money and ill-fated mind speculations got developed a powerful attraction to the territorial destructive whiskey and became addicted to one of the two useful medicines in his bag opium probably abusive. He dies of tetanus. um, And she's supporting herself in the needle trade. So as a seamstress on the Comstock load, when she meets and marries Mackey in 1867, when he is a successful mine owner, but not the Bonanza King. And when they do make hit this strike, the big Bonanza you know, Mackie wanted to run a rich and successful mine and be a big operator and a big wheel in business, right? He didn't really have an ambition for what to do with the money itself, right? Um, his wife, she knew exactly what to do with it. Um, and and taking this ore body out of the ground, the one I've described, was a tremendous engineering challenge, um, Extracting a void that big for more than a thousand feet underground is, is was one of the greatest mining challenges that miners had faced anywhere in the world up until that time. You know, Comstock miners had developed all these special techniques for extracting these massive ore bodies, um, many of which are derivatives of which are still used today in mining circles. So Mackey's got to supervise this. Tremendously difficult engineering challenge, and he's not going to be able to leave the mines very often. His wife had already moved to San Francisco, and he would commute, but even that didn't satisfy her. She didn't. She hated the Comstock load. She didn't like San Francisco. So Maggie buys her 9 rue de Tilsit in 1875, which, if you've ever stood on the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, is one of those mansions that fronts La Place de l'Etoile. Uh, it's currently the Belgian embassy. It's literally like the best address in Paris. Huh. She she lives there with their two sons um, in the late 1870s, and Mackey would stay in Nevada through um, for most of the year, and then once a year he would get on the train. It was only eight days to New York, and then it was only fourteen days to Europe on a steamship, and he would go visit his family in Paris for a couple months leaving the mine in charge of James Fair, his partner, and then he would come back. Uh, So he was essentially commuting to his family in Paris, um, although there's tons of... Tons of like Comstock legend that slags off Mrs. Mackey for, you know, moving to Paris and stuff. I'm almost certain that they made that decision together. You know, Mackey would have wanted his sons to have access to all the amazing educational opportunities that he hadn't had himself and could now provide. Um, And Mackey himself probably liked Paris and he was a big aficionado of the arts. So I think it was probably a very mutual arrangement. Um, and, and then, in around 1880, when the Big Bonanza plays out and it no longer needs Mackey's constant attention, he sort of flip-flops his year so that for from 1880 to 1883, he's spending nine months a year in Europe and then would come back for a couple months in the United States to tend to his business interests. And they're, the family's traveling around Europe, seeing the world's great art. Mackey becomes a big art collector. They're going to the great theater and seeing the best music in the world. Um, And, you know, living like kings and queens, they were among the most famous people in the world. And in 1883, which just floored me as I explored it, President Chester Arthur asks Mackey to become the special ambassador of the United States at the coronation of the Russian Tsar, Tsar Alexander III. Um, So Mackey goes to Moscow and participates as the official representative of the United States in this just like... Ceremony of barbaric splendor in the Kremlin. (laughs) Um, And, you know, he was the toast of newspapers all over the world at that time. The Russian newspapers were fascinated with his story and the Tsarina, the Tsarina, the Empress chatted, cornered him at the coronation ball and asking him questions about California. And the, and the czar complimented Mrs. Mackey as the best dressed woman at the ball. And think about that, that, you know, this is a guy that was born in a dirt floor. Irish cottage is now the official representative of the United States at the coronation of the czar. It's just an incredible trajectory.
0: And for the last 20 or so years of his life, Mackey is in many ways sort of the the classic Gilded Age industrialist. And he comes into conflict with another one of that sort of elk, with the financier Jay Gould. How did the two come to uh, see each other as rivals and what's the outcome of their struggle?
1: Well, great question. So those three years where Mackey is in Europe, mostly tending to his business interests by using the transatlantic telegraph cable which as of 1881 had fallen under the control of jay gould the railroad baron who had leveraged his railroad ownerships into control of telegraph companies which often ran associated with the railroads and uh, he gained control of the western union leveraged his dominance of the western union into being able to form a cartel of the uh, transatlantic telegraph cables doubled rates, and was totally gouging from the customers because he had uh, monopoly control of them. Well, Mackey has become well aware of this, and he, you know, isn't he's in his like late forties at this time. I take that back early 40s, he's probably 42, 43, and he's just not ready to settle into a permanent retirement. So he decides that he's going to, I take that back early 50s, he des- he um, decides that he's going to get back into business by challenging Gould's transatlantic telegraph monopolies, one of the few people in the world with the resources to do it. So he commissions and lays two rival Transatlantic Telegraph cables in association with James Gordon Bennett Jr., who owned the New York Herald, Um, although Mackey owned the lion's share of that partnership too. And then it sparks this huge price war between the commercial cable company, which was the company that Mackey founded, and the Gould Pool, as it was known, which was the cartel of Gould, that raged through the middle 1880s um, and culminates in Mackey's victory, Right prices declined by a half um he forced gould to you know into open competition and and it was you know one of the it was a huge public service in a lot of ways but you know also a profitable business enterprise for mackey and you know it made him one of the toasts of america at the time
0: john mackey dies in 1902 and I'm curious, looking back over over the story that you researched and told, what do you see as his legacy? And more broadly, what do you think his story tells us about the American West? Um, well, his legacy is not
1: what it should be for a very ironic reason, in that Mackey was one of the most widely admired Americans of the Gilded Age. It's very difficult to find editorial commentary uh, slagging him off in the 1880s. 80, late 1880s and 1890s. Uh, he was seen as, a, you know, we moderns see the environmental damage that the, that the mining industry did all over the West, but it wasn't seen that way at the time, right? Being a miner was seen as making honest wealth. You were digging it out from nature's strongholds where God had put it and not taking advantage of people in profit and loss business transactions, right? So... Uh, his wealth was seen as much cleaner than a guy's like Jay Gould's or Russell Sages or any of the other uh, Stanford and Huntington would be a classic example. The railroad barons who were always taking advantage of people in business transactions. You know, they had such a monopoly on transportation that they were squeezing the surplus profit out of the economy and, um, uh, they were reviled in the context of their time, and rightly so, chiseling on their employees' wages all the time, you know, these brutal strikes, breaking the strikes, corrupting court decisions and, you know, political officers. So they had this immense PR problem in the 1890s. and But they're the guys that are remembered today because late in life, you know, Stanford, Huntington, Carnegie, Mellon, Rockefeller. They found all these philanthropic organizations or universities that spend the next hundred years rehabilitating the family name. Well, Mackey never had that pressure, right? Um, he was very charitable in his lifetime. He gave away almost all of his money anonymously. He hated public attention. Um He's the original donor of the Metropolitan Opera in New York and the opera here in San Francisco, for example. And the list just goes on and on of his many charities. Uh, but uh, anonymously, he felt no need to f- found this philanthropic organization that would rehabilitate the family name because he'd never lost it. And that's ironically why we remember those other guys today, but don't remember Mackey. The only real physical legacy of him is the Maggie School of Mines at the University of Nevada, Reno, which was endowed by his son, Clarence, uh, in the early 20th century. Uh, as for your question about Mackey's legacy in the West, um, you know, it's, it's very small. You have to know how to look to see the legacy of the Comstock mines in California. It's there and it's very apparent if you know how to see it, but it's not. You know, standing up on a billboard with neon signs, Uh, you know, anybody that's ever used a ski lift is using technology derived from Comstock mining technology, the same with the San Francisco cable cars. Um, uh, Santa Monica, California founded by John Percival Jones, the Santa Anita Racetrack founded by E.J. Baldwin, another Comstock millionaire, and lots of stuff in Southern California is named for him, Baldwin Hills um uh the San Anita racetrack, Baldwin Park, etc. You know, the Hearst Family Foundation, George Hearst, William Randolph's father, got his start in the Comstock mines, made his first raise in the early Comstock mines. And indeed, I think the family fortune for many, many years was much deeper in mining than it was in publishing. The Hearst Hearst ended up, ended up owning you know, the Emma and Bingham Canyon in, in the Salt Lake vicinity, uh, the Anaconda Mine in Butte, and the Homestake Mine in South Dakota, and those are three of the best mining properties in the West after the Comstock load played out. Um, You know, so there is a legacy of mining in the West, and that's obviously true in the environmental damage. You know, you'd be hard-pressed to find a tree in the Tahoe Basin older than 1860, because the whole Tahoe Basin was clear-cut, and the timber either shoved down the Comstock mines to support the galleries, uh, you know, these immense ore bodies, or, you know, used as fuel to fire the boilers that drove the steam engines. Um, So it's just not so apparent in the modern world, Mackey's legacy. In New York, you have the Postal Telegraph building at 253 Broadway. That's the first building in a world with a push-button elevator in it. Uh, That was a huge technological improvement that nobody pays any credit to today.
0: So much like the, the the Comstock load itself, it sounds like the the legacy of it extends out in all sorts of directions. You just have to kind of know where to dig and look for it. Then,
1: yeah, that's true. You know, Mac the Mackey family mausoleum in the Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn is absolutely the dominant structure there, amidst several centuries of well-to-do New Yorkers. Uh, the legacy is there. It's just you just have to know how to look for it.
0: Well, it's a fantastic story, and you tell it uh, tremendously well in the book. I really enjoyed reading it. And now that the book is out and available, do you have a new project in mind? Do you know where you're going to turn next? I
1: don't know for sure. i, I learned I learned a lot of techniques for digital searching of the old newspaper records that have recently been digitized. I, I'd like to I'd like to stay in the public domain. So I'd like to find a story pre 1927 1928 uh i just haven't i and i have a lot of ideas but i haven't really researched i haven't delved in enough to know a whether the sources are good enough there's three big things you got to decide first is you want to be careful not to be writing what is essentially a long magazine article instead of a book and you can spend months figuring that out um you know um How good are the sources that I can find? And what about the competing books? Has anybody written a book about this topic that's, uh, you know, that you can't compete with, right? uh, I'm sure there's other fascinating stories about the Comanche Nation other than the one that was told uh, by Sam Gwynn in Empire of the Summer Moon. But you'd have a hell of a hard time competing with a book that good. So you want to make sure that nothing of that caliber has been written before about your topic. And I just haven't looked into it enough to know.
0: Well, when you decide and you end up writing, we'll have you back on the podcast. That'll be my pleasure. Gregory Crouch is a writer and a book critic and is the author of The Bonanza King, John Mackey and the Battle Over the Greatest Riches in the American West. Gregory, thanks again for coming on the show today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you very much.